Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group, and we're studying the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 11 of this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. This book is titled The Realms of Existence. We've been exploring teachings directly from the Buddha about the five realms of existence. We've already studied the hell realm, the animal realm, and the afflicted spirit realm. We're starting to spend time learning about the human realm. So the chapters that we're studying today in today's class are all about the human realm. We're going to be studying volume 11, chapters 51 through 60. The way that I do this program is I invite students in Zoom that if you would like to volunteer to read a particular chapter, you can read the chapter. Then I will share teachings on that chapter and then open up to any and all questions that anybody might have related to that particular chapter. If no one volunteers in Zoom in order to read the chapter, then I'll just read it myself. The best thing to do is actually to download these books or get a printed version of them so that you can read them either before class and or after class because you have the original words of the Buddha, you have a reference back to the original source in the Pali Canon, and then you have teachings from me which are reflections to be able to help you to understand the teachings of the Buddha more deeply and to practice them. The teachings of the Buddha are very straightforward in my opinion, but oftentimes a particular teaching that he has is connected to other teachings. And if you don't know those other teachings, it really helps to have a teacher to be able to share that with you and present it to you. So you'll see in these books that you have the words of the Buddha, you have a reference to go back to the original Pali Canon, and then you have reflections from me to be able to help you connect it all together and then understand how to practice it in your day-to-day life. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly, you're welcome to study with us even if you haven't read these chapters yet we're going to be reading them during the class so you're going to surely learn something from the teachings of the buddha because remember everything you're learning in one way or another is helping you to get to this peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy which is the enlightened mental state and as you learn and investigate examine his teachings you then reflect on them to independently verify them and then you practice them and that's what's transforming the mind and uprooting any pollutions out of the mind you're never interested in believing any of his teachings, including the cycle of rebirth. So that's why this book is here as the 11th volume of the 13 volume book series, because students 
We'll typically have studied certain foundational teachings up to this point to really get a good start on the path to enlightenment. But if you've never studied the teachings of the Buddha before, you're welcome to study in our class today. But just understand that this isn't where a typical student would start learning. They will typically start in our group learning program or some of our other foundational courses to be able to learn the path to enlightenment and develop their understanding of his teachings so that they can develop their practice. So again, I'd like to welcome all of you guys. I'm going to be displaying the chapters here on the screen. And then I'll just read if nobody else volunteers. And then after someone reads, I will then share teachings on that particular chapter. Then I'll open up to any and all questions you guys might have. This first chapter is chapter 51. It's titled Consciousness Conditions Name and Form. I have said Consciousness Conditions Name and Form, and this is the way that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, would name and form develop there? No, venerable sir. Or if consciousness, having entered the mother's womb, were to be deflected, would name and form come to birth in this life? No, venerable sir. And if the consciousness of such a tender young being, boy or girl, were thus cut off, would name and form grow, develop, and mature? No, venerable sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely consciousness, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of name and form. I have said name and form conditions consciousness, and this is the way that should be understood, Ananda. If consciousness did not find a resting place in name and form, would there subsequently be an arising and coming to be of birth, aging, death, and discontentedness? No, venerable sir. Therefore, Ananda, just this, namely, name and form, is the root, the cause, the origin, the condition of consciousness. Thus far then, Ananda, we can trace birth and decay, death and falling away into other states and being reborn. Thus far extends the way of designation. Thus far extends the way of concepts. Thus far is the sphere of understanding. Thus far the round goes as far as can be discerned in this life, namely to name and form together with consciousness. Okay, so here this teaching would require somebody to understand another teaching which is called dependent origination. Dependent origination is the highest most ultimate truth of the Buddha where he shows you the 12 interlinking steps that leads to discontentedness in the mind and continuous rebirth. Here he's peering into a particular part of dependent origination and really calling that out and making it very clear that consciousness which is the mind coming together with a physical body is what's going to produce a birth and that is then going to produce this discontentedness and then a being is going to come into existence. Here the Buddha says, I have said consciousness conditions name and form. When the Buddha describes what name and form is, he's essentially describing the physical body. So whenever you see the Buddha using this term name and form, I suggest you 
think of that as the physical body. So if you study dependent origination and you understand it, you understand that there needs to be a consciousness, there needs to be a mind. And if there is a mind, it will then find a physical body in the womb of a woman. And now there's going to be a being that comes about. There's going to be an existence, right? So this is part of dependent origination, showing you how a human being comes into existence. And what the Buddha is saying is, if consciousness were not to come into the mother's womb, would there be a physical body developed there? And the answer is no, venerable sir. So essentially a being is not going to come into existence if there is no consciousness. Then the Buddha says, if consciousness, having entered the mother's womb, were to be deflected, would a physical body come to birth in this life? And the answer is no, venerable sir. What the Buddha is essentially describing here is how if a consciousness isn't available and it doesn't actually enter into the mother's womb, or if it was deflected, meaning a miscarriage, would a being come into existence? And of course, the answer is no. And if consciousness of such a tender young being, boy or girl, were thus cut off, would a physical body grow, develop, and mature? Of course not. No, venerable sir. So here the Buddha is showing you that there has to be a consciousness in existence in order to get to an actual being in existence. And when you study dependent origination, you can see the causes and conditions that lead to a consciousness, which is the ignorance or unknowing of true reality and volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. That's what leads to a consciousness being created. That if you have ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, meaning a lack of wisdom, confusion, delusion in the mind, then you're going to make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. And now, because of that unwholesome results, that unwholesome gamma, you're going to have to experience that. So it's going to create a spark that then produces the next consciousness. And dependent origination shows you the complete detail of how that's occurring. So the Buddha goes through teaching here all these different things and essentially helping you to understand how a being comes into existence and that it needs a consciousness, which is then going to find a name and form. And that's how a being comes into existence. And if you eliminate the causes and conditions that are leading to a consciousness, you can eliminate the continuous rebirth, which means all you need to do is cultivate wisdom. This is why you're taught to not believe anything on the path to enlightenment, but instead to learn, to reflect, independently verify, and to practice. That's what's going to lead to wisdom and transform the ignorance, which is the top condition that is keeping dependent origination continuing over and over and over and over and over again. You can dismantle dependent origination and dismantle this whole cycle of rebirth. You can dismantle all this discontentedness that you're experiencing in the mind by cultivating wisdom of the path to enlightenment. You can learn, reflect, independently verify and practice. And that's going to destroy dependent origination because there's no more ignorance in the mind. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You can put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I will move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 52. 
Here, chapter 52 is titled Union and Disengagement Concerning Femininity and Masculinity. Monks, I will teach you a discourse on union and disengagement. Listen. And what is that discourse on union and disengagement? A woman, monks, attends internally to her feminine faculty, her feminine behavior, her feminine appearance, her feminine aspect, her feminine desire, her feminine voice, her feminine decoration. She becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, she attends externally to a man's masculine faculty, his masculine behavior, his masculine appearance, his masculine aspect, his masculine desire, his masculine voice, his masculine decoration. She becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, she desires union externally, and she also desires the pleasure and joy that arises on account of such union. Beings who are delighted with their femininity enter upon union with men. It is in this way that a woman does not transcend her femininity. A man, monks, attends internally to his masculine faculty, his masculine behavior, his masculine appearance, his masculine aspect, his masculine desire, his masculine voice, his masculine decoration. He becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, he attends externally to a woman's feminine faculty, her feminine behavior, her feminine appearance, her feminine aspect, her feminine desire, her feminine voice, her feminine decoration. He becomes excited by these and takes delight in them. Excited by them, taking delight in them, he desires union externally, and he also desires the pleasure and joy that arise on account of such union. Beings who are delighted with their masculinity enter upon union with women. It is in this way that a man does not transcend his masculinity. This is how union comes about. And how does disengagement come about? A woman, monks, does not attend internally to her feminine faculty, her feminine behavior, her feminine appearance, her feminine aspect, her feminine desire, her feminine voice, her feminine decoration. She does not become excited by these or take delight in them. Not excited by them, not taking delight in them, she does not attend externally to a man's masculine faculty, his masculine behavior, his masculine appearance, his masculine aspect, his masculine desire, his masculine voice, his masculine decoration. She does not become excited by these or take delight in them. Not excited by them, not taking delight in them, she does not desire union externally, nor does she desire the pleasure and joy that arise on account of such union. Beings who are not delighted with their femininity become disengaged from men. It is in this way that a woman transcends her femininity. A man, monks, does not attend internally to his masculine faculty, his masculine behavior, 
his masculine appearance, his masculine aspect, his masculine desire, his masculine voice, his masculine decoration. He does not become excited by these or take delight in them. Not excited by them, not taking delight in them, he does not attend externally to a woman's feminine faculty, her feminine behavior, her feminine appearance, her feminine aspect, her feminine desire, her feminine voice, her feminine decoration. He does not become excited by these or take delight in them. Not excited by them, not taking delight in them, he does not desire union externally, nor does he desire the pleasure and joy that arise on account of such union. Beings who are not delighted with their masculinity become disengaged from women. It is in this way that a man transcends his masculinity. This is how disengagement comes about. This, monks, is the teaching discourse on union and disengagement. Okay, so what the Buddha is talking about here at the top of this discourse is he's talking about a woman who is sexually attracted to a man and who is interested in having sexual contact with him and that she does so and she gets excited in that and she has significant pleasure and joy as a result based on the desire. And because of that, we know that in the situation where an individual has sexual contact, they're going to experience pleasant feelings, but then when they can't have sex, they're going to have agitation and annoyance and frustration and any kind of other discontent feelings. And then he describes the same thing for a man, that a man who has sexual desire for a woman, here this is an individual who is then excited with a woman and is interested in having sex and also has those conditioned pleasant feelings as a result. And the Buddha is saying this is how union comes about. This is how a man and a woman come together. And he talks about this in terms of a being coming into existence that in order for a being to come into existence in the human realm, there needs to be a man and a woman who come together and have sex. And that's why this is being described here in the realms of existence because he's helping his students to understand how a being comes into existence. Remember, we're talking 2,500 years ago where education and information wasn't as readily shared as it is today. So not everybody understood how beings came into existence. So the students who were learning with the Buddha, some of them came to him when they were five years old, six years old, seven, eight, ten years old. They didn't necessarily know how beings came into existence. And this is the Buddha essentially having the birds and the bees talk with his students to help them understand how a human being comes into existence through a man and a woman having sex. And that's what he's talking about here in the first part of this discourse. Then this next part, he's talking about a woman who isn't interested in having sex with a man. This is a woman who might prefer same gender relationships or a woman who's not even interested in having sex at all. That's what he's describing here. And then he's describing the same thing for a male, that a male who's not interested in having sex with a woman. So this person would either prefer same gender relationships or they would not be interested in sex whatsoever. And the Buddha is saying, okay, this is how disengagement comes about, that an individual is disengaged with sexual contact. They're uninterested in having sexual contact. So here, this is where you can see the Buddha was aware 
of same gender relationships and men and women who weren't interested in having sex with others. This is also how one would then transcend central desire for having sex with a certain person, eliminating any kind of desire or excitement in having sexual pleasure. So this is a very simple discourse. The Buddha isn't really teaching anything much here that you probably don't already know. But it's interesting to see how he teaches this and that he was teaching it during his lifetime. Notice that he doesn't share anything about how a same gender relationship produces harm. Whether you look in his teachings around sexual misconduct or you look at this particular teaching, there's nothing to teach about that because there's no harm if there's two loving, consenting adults choosing to have a sexual relationship. So let me know if you have any questions here. You can ask those by putting them into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter. This is chapter 53. This one is titled, Why Human Beings Are Seen to Be Unwholesome and Wholesome. Then, the Brahmin student, Subha, Todiha's son, I'm sorry, Kushi, if I'm mispronouncing these names, I'm sure you could pronounce them much better than me, went to the perfectly enlightened one and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and friendly talk was finished, he sat down at one side and asked the perfectly enlightened one, Master Gotama, what is the cause and condition why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? For people are seen to be short-lived and long-lived, sickly and healthy, ugly and beautiful, uninfluential and influential, poor and wealthy, low-born and high-born, unwise and wise. What is the cause and condition, Master Gotama, why human beings are seen to be unwholesome and wholesome? Student, beings are owners of their actions, heirs of their actions, they originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome or wholesome. I do not understand in detail the meaning of Master Gotama's statement, which he spoke in brief, without expounding the meaning in detail. It would be good if Master Gotama would teach me the teachings so that I might understand in detail the meaning of Master Gotama's statement. Okay, so I'm going to explain what's going on so far and then I'm going to continue on. So there's this student from a Brahmin, which a Brahmin is a Hindu priest and they have students. So this student is coming to the Buddha and asking for help to understand how to determine if someone is wholesome or unwholesome and how do does a being be seen as wholesome or unwholesome? And how do they experience having a short life or a long life? How do they experience being ugly or beautiful or sick or healthy or poor or wealthy? Essentially, he's asking about the natural law of gamma related to how do beings experience these particular either unwholesome results or wholesome results. So the Buddha gives this short understanding of the natural law of gamma. He's saying, okay, beings are the owners of their actions. So any 
actions they perform, there's going to be some results. And that result's either going to be wholesome or unwholesome. If you make a wise decision, it's going to produce a wholesome result. If you make an unwise decision, it's going to produce an unwholesome result. So they're the owners of their actions, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge, meaning as their protection. That if you make wise decisions, that's your protection. You know, some people might have a baseball bat in their house, a knife, a gun, or different things like this, a CCTV camera and so forth. And they think that they're protected. But what's really going to protect you is your wise decision making. If you make wise decisions to practice right intention, right speech, right action, and right livelihood as you go out into the world, you're not causing harm to any beings. So there's no harm that's going to come to you. It doesn't matter how many CCTV cameras, how many guns or knives or whatever else you have. If you're causing harm to people, they're going to figure out a way to cause harm to you. The thing that's going to protect you from harm is having wisdom in the mind about the natural law of gamma to then make wise decisions so that you're not causing harm to other beings so harm doesn't come to you. So that's what the Buddha is explaining here through understanding the natural law of gamma. It is action that distinguishes beings as wholesome or unwholesome. That's what he's sharing essentially. So now this student doesn't quite understand because the Buddha is kind of talking about this in summary form. So now the Buddha is going to go into detail explaining this natural law of gamma so that you can see the cause and effect or action and results of certain wise or unwise decisions that you make that then lead to either wholesome or unwholesome results. So now the Buddha continues. Then student, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, sir, the Brahmin student Sabha replied. The perfectly enlightened one said this, Here, student, some man or woman kills living beings and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, in hell, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is short-lived. This is the way, student, that leads to short life, namely, one kills living beings and is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. But here, student, some man or woman, abandoning the killing of living beings, abstains from killing living beings, with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly. He resides compassionate to all living beings. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. But if on the dissolution of the body after death, he does not reappear in a happy destination in the heavenly world, but instead comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is long lived. This is the way, student, that leads to long life, namely abandoning the killing of living beings, one abstains from killing living beings, 
with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly, one resides compassionate to all living beings. Here, student, some man or woman is given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is sickly. This is the way, student, that leads to sickliness, namely, one is given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. But here, student, some man or woman is not given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is healthy. This is the way, student, that leads to health. Namely, one is not given to injuring beings with a hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife. Here, student, some man or woman is of an angry and irritable character, even when criticized a little. He is offended, becomes angry, hostile, and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is ugly. This is the way, student, that leads to ugliness, namely, one is of angry and irritable character, even when criticized a little. He is offended, becomes angry, hostile, and resentful, and displays anger, hate, and bitterness. But here, student, some man or woman is not of an angry and irritable character, even when criticized a little. He is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is beautiful. This is the way, student, that leads to being beautiful. Namely, one is not of an angry and irritable character, even when criticized a little. He is not offended, does not become angry, hostile, and resentful, and does not display anger, hate, and bitterness. Here, student, some man or woman is jealous, one who is selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But 
If instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is uninfluential. This is the way, student, that leads to being uninfluential. Namely, one is jealous, resentful, and feels bitter towards the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. But here, student, some man or woman is not jealous, one who is not selfish, resentful, and feels bitter about the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is influential. This is the way, student, that leads to being influential. Namely, one is not jealous, resentful, and feels bitter towards the gains, honor, respect, appreciation, salutations, and veneration received by others. Here, student, some man or woman does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is poor. This is the way, student, that leads to poverty. Namely, one does not give food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, bedding, beds, dwelling, in lamps, to aesthetics or Brahmins. But here, student, some man or woman gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmins. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wealthy. This is the way, student, that leads to wealth. Namely, one gives food, drink, clothing, carriages, garlands, scents, ointments, beds, dwelling, and lamps to aesthetics or Brahmins. Here, student, some man or woman is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage, respect, to one who should receive homage, respect, does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up, does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make way for one for whom he should make way, and does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is low-born. This is the way, student, that leads to low birth. Namely, one is stubborn and arrogant. He does not pay homage, respect, to one who should receive homage, respect 
does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up, does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make way for whom he should make way, and does not honor, respect, appreciate, and venerate one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. But here, student, some man or woman is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for whom he should make way, and honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is highborn. This is the way, student, that leads to high birth. Namely, one is not stubborn and arrogant. He pays homage, respect to one who should receive homage, respect, rises up for one in whose presence he should rise up, offers a seat to one who deserves a seat, makes way for whom he should make way, in honors, respects, appreciates, and venerates one who should be honored, respected, appreciated, and venerated. Here, student, some man or woman does not visit an aesthetic or a Brahmin and ask, Venerable sir, what is wholesome? What is unwholesome? What is blamable? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? What kind of action will lead to my harm and discontentedness for a long time? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a state without basic necessities, in perdition, even in hell. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is unwise. This is the way, student, that leads to being unwise. Namely, one does not visit an aesthetic or Brahmin and ask such questions. But here, student, some man or woman visits an aesthetic or a Brahmin and asks, Venerable Sir, what is wholesome? What is unwholesome? What is blamable? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? What kind of action will lead to my harm and discontentedness for a long time? What kind of action will lead to my welfare and peacefulness for a long time? Because of performing and undertaking such action on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination in the heavenly world. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is wise. This is the way, student, that leads to wisdom, namely, that one visits an aesthetic or Brahmin and asks such questions. Thus, student, the way that leads to short life makes people short-lived. The way that leads to long life makes people long-lived. The way that leads to sickliness makes people sickly. The way that leads to health 
makes people healthy. The way that leads to ugliness makes people ugly. The way that leads to being beautiful makes people beautiful. The way that leads to being uninfluential makes people uninfluential. The way that leads to being influential makes people influential. The way that leads to poverty makes people poor. The way that leads to wealth makes people wealthy. The way that leads to lowborn makes people lowborn. The way that leads to high birth makes people highborn. The way that leads to unwise makes people unwise. The way that leads to wisdom makes people wise. Beings are owners of their actions, student, heirs of their actions. They originate from their actions, are bound to their actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as unwholesome and wholesome. When this was said, the Brahmin student said to the perfectly enlightened one, Magnificent Master Gotama, Magnificent Master Gotama, Master Gotama has made the teachings clear in many ways, as though he were turning upright what had been overturned, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. I go to Master Gotama for refuge, and to the teachings, and to the community of monks. Let Master Gotama remember me as a household practitioner who has gone to him for refuge for life. Okay, this is a very long discourse to help you see all the various actions that lead to certain outcomes. Oftentimes people are curious to understand, you know, what particular action is going to lead to any particular outcome in a rebirth. And here the Buddha is giving you some detail on this. There's other parts of his teachings where he talks about trying to understand the exact, exact result of gamma would be leading you to either madness or frustration. But there's teachings like this where he does give you some insight of what things you could be doing in one life that's going to lead to a certain outcome in a future life. Here he's talking about rebirth in hell in the heavenly realm, which isn't the goal of the path to enlightenment. The goal of the path to enlightenment is to train the mind, eliminate all the pollutions of mind, get to this peaceful, joyful mental state of enlightenment, and then you can enjoy that for the rest of your life. And there isn't going to be rebirth anywhere in the cycle of rebirth. What happens next for an enlightened being after there's death? He doesn't declare what's going to occur in his teachings. He doesn't declare that. So here he's talking about rebirth in hell in the heavenly realm. But just understand that that's not the ultimate goal. The goal is to get to enlightenment in this life and not experience rebirth anywhere within the cycle of rebirth. But it does help you to understand why some beings live for a short time. So if you see an individual who dies at the age of 10 or something like that or 20 or 30, you can understand that this is from potentially a previous life or something that they've done in this life. You can see that if someone has a long life, this is based on decisions that they've made in this life and in previous lives as well. You can see here if someone is sickly, they're constantly getting sick, or maybe they're born with some medical condition into the world. This is based on things that occurred in a previous life, that they're injuring beings, as the Buddha is talking about here. And then the Buddha also talks about someone who is healthy, 
This is because they're not injuring beings. Here he's talking about people who are ugly or beautiful. And this is relating to the anger or irritable character from previous lives. Then he's talking here, an individual who's either influential or uninfluential. This is based on being jealous or selfish or resentful. That if you have those qualities, then you'll be uninfluential, not only in, in a future life, but in this life as well. And then when you're not jealous and you're not resentful, you're not selfish and bitter about other people's gain, honor, and praise and things like this, that then you can be influential. He's talking about someone who is poor versus wealthy. This is based on giving gifts to aesthetics and Brahmins so that they can continue on their path to enlightenment. He's talking here about an individual who's lowborn or highborn. This is what type of family you're born into, whether it's a lower class family or upper class family, and an individual who's stubborn or arrogant, doesn't pay respect to others. That's what's going to lead to being lowborn versus someone who shows respect. He says that this is an individual who's going to be born into a higher class family. Here he's talking about someone who's either wise or unwise. And this is based on seeking guidance and understanding from teachers about the teachings that lead to enlightenment. So here he's talking about that it's gamma that decides this. It's your actions. It's the cause and effect, the action and result, the results of your decisions. That's what the natural law of gamma is. It's not mystical or magical. It's not a dark cloud following you around. It's not punishments and rewards. It's just the results of your decisions. It's very simple, very straightforward. So here the Buddha is helping you to be able to see this cause and effect more and more clearly. So then what you do is as you're learning a teaching like this, even though you're looking to get to enlightenment, you're not interested in rebirth at all. But when you see teachings like this, when you see the Buddha talking about jealousy and resentment and bitterness and hostility and things like this, and someone who doesn't respect others, you can pull out the qualities here that it would be wise for you to be able to practice, ensuring that you're not angry and irritable. You can look through a discourse like this and really see not injuring beings, trying to harm beings. You can go through a teaching like this and be like, all right, I'm not interested in doing any of these things. Because not that you are interested in being scared or fearful about being reborn in hell or that you aspire to be reborn in the heavenly world, but the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly world are the same things that lead to enlightenment too. So you would like to practice all those wise teachings that the Buddha is describing here, and that will help you to gain wisdom to then inform your practice to then function with actions that are wise and wholesome, leading to wholesome results in this life. And then if for some reason you need to be reborn, okay, then you're going to experience wholesome results in that life too. But you would like to experience results in this life where you can get to enlightenment. And these things that the Buddha is sharing with you are things that will actually lead to enlightenment. They do lead to rebirth in the heavenly world as well, but they lead to enlightenment in this life as well. So it looks like Tonka has a question. If you'd like to go ahead, ma'am. Okay, there's uh, two things that I would like to ask you about. First one is the term perdition. I don't think uh, I understand that one. Sure. And also I was wondering, because there is another teaching uh, from Buddha about treating everybody the same, like here paying homage, giving someone seed and paying respect and 
all that like it just seems to be uh yes of course but at the same time like are we supposed to treat everybody equally sure great questions tonka so the way that i understand perdition is it's basically not the hell realm but you're on the way to hell realm you're kind of like hanging out in an environment that is almost in hell but not quite hell so it is part of the hell realm but it's not quite in existence in hell realm it's kind of like waiting to be in hell and it's kind of like a holding room or a waiting room at a doctor's office you're not yet in the exam room you're in the waiting room kind of thing that's what i understand perdition to be the answer to your question is yes you should treat everybody equally you should be respectful and have respect and politeness and kindness towards everybody. What the Buddha is talking about here is that during his life, there were monarchs, there were noble people, there were aesthetics and Brahmins and people like this. And people were often taught to respect them and people who were into unwholesome and unwise things people probably aren't necessarily respecting them as much. But it would be wise for you to have politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect to everybody in the world because that's what's going to produce wholesome results for you. Okay, thank you very much. And also, I could read the following to give you a bit of a break. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. That's very nice of you, Tonka. Let me come back to you for that. It uh, looks like Kushi has a question. Go ahead, ma'am. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask that uh, after learning a chapter like this, when I go out in the world and have thoughts about how this person or animal would be born, like why a cat is a cat or some other thing, then the next thing, uh, I feel bad because I don't know the next step that how to see them equally. So how to do that? So having this thought itself feels a little bit bad because I don't know. So how to like see all beings compassionately and equally after having learned teaching like this? Yeah. So the best thing to do is you need to cultivate your loving kindness through loving kindness meditation and then practice it through your intention, speech and actions and then also compassion. So loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, active goodwill towards all beings. You can cultivate that in meditation and then practice it through your intention, speech and actions in the way that is described in the Eightfold Path. And then your compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others. That even though you see people doing unwise things, and you know that now because you're gaining more and more wisdom to know that it's unwise and it's unwholesome, have concern for their misfortune. Understand that, wow, they haven't been able to gain access to these teachings that you have, that now that you've got all this wisdom that other people don't have, rather than look down on them or think negatively of them. Instead, just have concern for their misfortune that, wow, it's just so unfortunate that they haven't had a opportunity yet in this life to be able to gain access to the wisdom of the Buddha because they're gonna to continue to function through that lack of wisdom and continue to cause harm to others, which is then gonna come back to them. That's the first way to think about this. The next way is to do what the Buddha describes when he shares that you should think about all individual beings that you interact with as having previously been your mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, or some other relative. So when you see that cat or dog or squirrel, or you see that person 
human being, you know, in the world that is doing unwise things, or even if they're doing wise things, uh, you can think of them as a family member rather than think of them as a stranger or somebody that you don't know or something like this. Think of them as your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter, or some other relative, because we've all been reborn so many countless times in the world that the Buddha shares that it would be impossible to find somebody that hasn't previously been one of your family members. And this is a way to arise loving kindness and compassion in your mind so that when you go into different stores or you see people on the street, you can smile at everybody. Instead of having the perspective that this is a stranger, this is oftentimes the way the mind's conditioned and that strangers are bad. Instead, you have the perspective that this is a family member that I just haven't met yet. And now I can smile at them, I can love them, I can have care and kindness for them. But you need to be able to do that without any expectation of anything back, that you don't want them to smile back. You're not longing and yearning for any response, that you're just doing it because you know it's a wise thing to do. And if you haven't done this yet, you can go around town. And I know you're in India now. I think you guys why people in India too. Just why people everywhere you go. And when I did this, even here in Thailand, I walked around the streets for a few days doing that when I was going on my walks and different things. I noticed about 10% of the people wide me back, and that was the Thai people mostly, where the tourists, of course, didn't wide me. But I did this in order to train my mind to not expect anybody to wide me back. And this is really helpful because then I learned to be cheerful and bright and smiling and thankful and polite and respectful, regardless of what other people choose to do. So if you can just go out in the world, maybe take a five minute walk every once in a while, 10 minute walk, however long you like. And as you're walking down the street, you see people standing in a doorway, you see them walking towards you, you see them sitting down, just smile at them and wide to them or wave to them. And if people don't wave you back, that's fine. And if you don't feel safe doing that where you're at now, you can do it in a place like Thailand because you're from here and, and you come here sometimes. And as you do this, you'll get used to being loving and kind to people as well and seeing them as your family members and changing that perspective. I think you know that here in Thailand, when we speak Thai, we refer to a waiter as big brother or big sister or little sister, little brother, or you know that elderly woman behind the counter, we refer to her as grandma or mom or something like that. Or the, the taxi driver, we might refer to him as uncle. We have different ways of referring to people this way. And it's, it can be somebody you've never even met before, but you talk to them as if they are your family members. And that's the way I think when I go out into the world, not just here in Thailand, but when I travel in other parts of the world, I think as if this is my uncle, this is my mother, this is my grandmother or whomever. And then you'll notice that it's much easier to bring that loving kindness and compassion up in the mind and now practice it through your intention, speech and actions, which is then gonna produce wholesome results for you. When I traveled a year and a half ago to America and to Egypt, I was just loving and kind and friendly and warm and polite and respectful to everybody I met. And I didn't know anybody because I hadn't been to those places in a very long time. 
and there was nothing but love and kindness and compassion coming back. There was a couple of situations that we had uh, here or there, but nonetheless, that's just impermanence, right? So I trained my mind to understand that this is impermanent. So even though I'm being loving and kind and polite and respectful, there's going to be a small segment of the population who doesn't reciprocate that. And that's okay because I don't have any expectation that they will. And I understand impermanence. I don't have a craving, a longing, yearning. But in all the travels that we did for six weeks or seven weeks, the entire family, we had a great experience everywhere we went. So you can train your mind to do this by doing it in small little increments, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes when you go on a walk or something like that. That's what I would recommend. Okay, I see your thumbs up. <laughs> all right, let me check uh, YouTube and Facebook and see if we have any questions. All right, I don't see any questions there. So Tonka, I'll take you up on that offer if you'd like to read this next chapter. Sure. Duty of a noble will turning monarch. The perfectly enlightened one spoke about will turning monarch of long, long ago. This conversation is between the consecrated Kataya king's son and king Danemi father. But what, sir, is the duty of a noble will turning monarch? It is this, my son, yourself depending on the teachings, honoring it, revering it, cherishing it, doing homage, respect to it, and venerating it, having the teachings as your bondage and banner, acknowledging the teachings as your master, you should establish guards, security, and protection according to the teachings for your own household. Your troops, your nobles, and royal subordinates for Brahmins and householders, town and country folk, ascetics and Brahmins for beasts and birds. Let no crime exist in your kingdom, and to those who are in need, give property. And whoever ascetics and Brahmins in your kingdom have renounced the life of sensual desire, obsession, and are devoted to patient mental discipline and gentleness, each one taming himself, each one calming himself, and each one striving for the end of craving. From time to time, you should go to them and consult them as to what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, what is blameworthy and what is blameless, what is to be followed and what is not to be followed, and what action will in the long run lead to harm and sorrow, and what to welfare and peacefulness. Having listened to them, you should avoid the evil and wholesome and do what is wholesome. Then, my son, is the duty of a noble will turning monarch. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So here, there's this conversation between a son and a father, both being kings. And they're basically, the father is explaining what a wheel-turning monarch should be doing. Essentially, he's describing to use the teachings of the Buddha as a guide to be able to rule over this kingdom. And that's what's going to help in conducting this kingdom in such a way that the population can live in peace. So 
that's what this is describing. What a wheel-turning monarch was during the lifetime of the Buddha was a monarch, like a king or a queen, that is ruling over a population of people based on the teachings of the Buddha. Nowadays, there are kings and queens in the world, but we could also connect this to presidents and prime ministers. We could also look at this as a parent or a father in a household. Even though the Buddha is talking about this in terms of an individual who's ruling over a large population of people because they can be very influential in helping a community of people to learn and understand the teachings, which would be really helpful to understand the natural law of gamma. But also, if you're a employer at your office and you have 10 employees or you have 10,000 employees or you are at home and you have three, four, five, six family members living in your home. If you're learning and practicing the teachings for yourself and keening that wisdom, now as you interact with people in your home, you're going to be functioning through these teachings and people are going to pick that up from you. People are going to absorb that just through you, not even directly teaching them, but them just seeing how you interact, how you think, having conversations, observing your actions in the world. People are going to gain wisdom from that. They're going to appreciate the things that you do and then potentially adopt some of the wisdom that they've learned through just observing your conduct and the way you interact in the world. So here, this discourse that is being documented, which is essentially a conversation between two kings, a father and a son, is just helping you to see that by using the teachings for yourself and then guiding others through those, if you are in a position of maybe a leader in a household or a business, or a leader of a company, or anything like that, a large population of people, or any number of people, this can be really helpful for you. Do you guys have any questions on this chapter? You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions there. So this is chapter 55. It looks like Tonka's got her hand up again. Yeah, I can read, teacher David. Perfect, Tonka. Go for it. Beings bound by action. One is not a Brahmin by birth, nor by birth a non-Brahmin. By action is one a Brahmin. By action is one non-Brahmin. For men are farmers by their acts, and by their acts are craftsmen too. And men are merchants and their acts and by their arts are servants too. And men are robbers by their arts, and by their arts are soldiers too. And men are chaplains by their arts, and by their arts are rulers too. So that is how the truly wise see action as it really is. See dependent origination, skilled in action and its results. Action makes the world go around. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action, like the chariot wheel by the linchpin. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was based on what family you were born into that a lot of people kind of form their views and opinions of you or certain jobs that you would take and you were basically looked at and your life and your destiny in that life people assume that based on where you were born that's kind of the life that you would live so this brahmin caste that existed during this time frame and it exists now as well is that if you were born into this family you were thought to be a holy person and that you were very pure 
because you were born into this family and this caste system. And the Buddha is saying that's not true, that it's not based on where you're born to determine whether you're pure or holy. It's based on your actions. That's what he's saying here is that it's not based on what family you're born into, what caste you're born into, whether you're high class, low class, upper class, what have you, that it's based on your actions. That's what's going to determine what you experience in life. It's not going to be determined based on where you're born. So it's not like you're born and then you have some destiny or you have some fate. You're born into a certain situation. And then whatever resources you have available to you, whatever obstacles you have, you need to cultivate wisdom to be able to overcome those obstacles through cultivating the wisdom and making wise decisions to produce wholesome results. So the Buddha uses some examples here to be able to help you see this, that people are farmers based on their actions, that if you're considered to be a farmer, that's because you're out in the field, you're plowing the field, you're planting seeds, you're harvesting crops. That's what determines whether you're a farmer. So he's helping to illustrate that you're not pure in a pure Brahmin just because of being born in a family, just like you're not a farmer just because you were born into a farming family. The way that it's determined that you're a farmer is that you're doing farming things. So in order to be pure, you would need to do pure things and make wise decisions. And then the Buddha uses all these other examples too, that an individual is a craftsman based on their acts or a merchant or a servant. And he goes through all these different things. And then ultimately what he gets to is he says, okay, this is how the truly wise see action as it really is. The truly wise are people who have awakened to the wisdom of the natural laws of existence, namely the natural law of karma. That's the main natural law that you're awakening to is this cause and effect or action and result. An individual who's truly wise and understands this natural law would understand that whatever you experience in life is a result of your decisions and what you choose to do. And that's what's going to determine what you experience in life. It's not bad luck or good luck. It's not faith or destiny. There's nothing mystical or magical about this life. It's just the results of your decisions. And if you can see that more and more clearly, then you'll start being able to cultivate the wisdom to make wise decisions in your life and improve your life. Whereas if everything you're experiencing is either destiny or fate or good luck or bad luck or you're blaming it on other people, then you have no ability to fix what's going on in your life because it's destiny, it's fate, you're locked in or it's good luck or bad luck. You don't have any ability to influence that or it's everybody else's fault. So therefore, everyone else is wrong. Well, if you continue to have that mindset, then your life's just going to continue to not be what you're interested in it being because you're not taking control of what's going on in your life. You're seeing it as you have no control. You're essentially a robot being subjected to whatever is around you. So if you get rid of that unwise, unbeneficial thinking and that self-defeating, self-sabotaging thinking, and you understand the natural law of gamma, that anything you experience is a result of your decisions, then anything in your life that you particularly don't care for, you can just gain wisdom and make a different decision. Gain wisdom about the natural law of gamma and now start making different decisions and you will experience different results in your life. But as long as you resign yourself to think it's destiny or fate, good luck or bad luck, or everybody else is the problem, then you're not taking active role in cultivating wisdom and making wiser decisions in your life. And the Buddha then starts talking about dependent origination here, which is something that you study as part of these teachings that is a very 
important teaching. It's the highest, most highest law that the Buddha teaches, showing the 12 interlinking steps of causality of how one gets to discontentedness and how one experiences rebirth. And this is in volume 5, chapter 14, that I explain that. Then the Buddha explains how important actions are, is that's what makes the world go round. That's how everything happens in the world. Nothing happens in this world without an action. And then there's a result, or there's a cause, and then there's an effect. But as long as you lack wisdom in this natural law, you'll make unwise decisions that produces unwholesome results. Just like the natural law of gravity, that when you lacked wisdom of that, you struggled and had difficulties, that eventually you awoke to the natural law of gravity, where when you didn't have the wisdom of it, you fell down, you hit your head, you struggled, you had difficulties. But when you gained wisdom of that natural law, you started making wiser decisions. You looked at the surface of the streets, the sidewalks, you tied your shoes tighter, you took your time more, you learned how to balance yourself on a bicycle. Now you can ride a bicycle, you can climb ladders, you can get on airplanes, you can do all kinds of things because you've awoken to the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. But when you lack wisdom of this natural law of gamma, you'll struggle and have difficulties just like you did during the time when you didn't understand the natural law of gravity. And this natural law is affecting you whether you know about it or not, just like the natural law of gravity. So when you can awaken to the wisdom of this natural law of gamma, it's affecting you even with your lack of wisdom. But when you have wisdom of it, then you'll make wise decisions that produce wholesome results. And that's why the Buddha is saying here that living beings are bound by their actions, meaning what you're experiencing in life is based on your actions. It's based on your decisions. It's not based on other people's decisions. But oftentimes the unenlightened mind has a hard time seeing that. And the more that you do see that, then you can take an active role in producing a better and better life for yourself by first gaining wisdom and then making wiser decisions. Just like a chariot, which is a horse-drawn carriage is connected by the linchpin, which is what's keeping this carriage and this horse connected together. The Buddha is saying your actions are what's keeping you connected to whatever you experience in life. So the actions are your linchpin in this life, that that's what's keeping you bound here, and that's what's also producing either wholesome or unwholesome results in your life. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You can put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So now we go to chapter 56. All right, looks like Kushi and Tonka are raising their hand. Maybe we'll give Kushi a chance, and then we'll come back to you, Tonka, for the next one. Yeah, I can read it. The path leading to reappearance in accordance with one's objective Monks, I shall teach you reappearance in accordance with one's objective. Listen and attend closely to what I say. Here, monks, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do nobles. He fixes his mind on that determined upon it, develops it. Then objectives and this effort of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, 
virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the resolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do Brahmins. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon that, develops it. These objectives and this effort of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Again, a monk possesses confidence, virtue, moral conduct, learning, generosity, and wisdom. He thinks, oh, that on the dissolution of the body after death, I might reappear in the company of well-to-do householders. He fixes his mind on that, determined upon it, develops it. These objectives and this effort of his, thus developed and cultivated, lead to his reappearance there. This monks is the path, the way that leads to reappearance there. Okay, thank you, Kushi. Let me help you guys to understand this particular chapter. Sometimes when people read this, they think, oh, all I need to do is get to the end of my life and think about where it is that I would like to be reborn and then that's going to happen. That's not what the Buddha is sharing here. What he's basically sharing is that if you have the thought that you would like to be reborn somewhere and then you set your mind to that in this life to be practicing as if you're practicing in that way, then through you developing your mind in that way, you will then be reborn in that place. But remember, your goal isn't to be reborn whatsoever. That's not the objective of this life. I would encourage everybody and anybody to set their goal and their sights on arahantship or the fourth stage of enlightenment, eliminating all 10 fetters so that you can get to enlightenment and enjoy the rest of this life. And then you won't experience rebirth in any of these realms whatsoever. So the Buddha is just describing that essentially you put your mind and fix your mind on a particular goal to practice in a certain way. And it's your practice that is then going to lead you to being reborn in that particular place. Any questions on this one? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So we'll move on to the next one. I'm not going to have us read this one. This is chapter 57. This is a really long chapter where uh, the Buddha is basically describing the creation of the world based on what he shared. His, this is his creation story. If you've read this and you have questions on it, you'd like to ask me, I'd be pleased to answer your questions or at least attempt to answer your questions. But you can see here that it's quite long and it goes through a lot of different things. There's nothing here that you would absolutely have to learn in order to get to enlightenment, but I included it in the book series because this is oftentimes a question that people ask is, what did the Buddha teach about the creation of the world? And this is that particular story. This is volume 11, chapter 57. And anybody who's interested in reading this, you're welcome to read it at any point by getting the access to the books that I share. And if anybody has read it and they have questions, just let me know. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to chapter 58. If Tonka, you would like to read that, you're welcome to. Oh, it looks like Kochi either has a question or I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I can read it. Okay, you'd like to read it? Yeah, we'll give Tonka a break. <laughs> we'll all get a break. <laughs> okay. Causes of a decrease in people's lifespan. 
the king established guard and protection but he did not give property to the needy and as a result poverty became widespread thus from the not giving of property to the needy poverty became widespread from the growth of poverty the taking of what was not given increased from the increase of theft the use of weapons increased from the increase of use of weapons the taking of life increased from from the increase in taking of life people's lifespan decreased their beauty decreased and as a result of this decrease of lifespan and beauty the children of those whose lifespan had been 80000 years lived for only 40000 years thus from not giving of the property to the needy the taking of life increased and from taking of life lying increased from increase in lying people's lifespan decreased their beauty decreased and as a result the children of those whose lifespan had been 40000 now only for 20000 years thus from the not giving of the property to the needy the speaking evil of others increased and in consequence people's lifespan decreased their beauty decreased and as a result the children of those whose lifespan had been 20000 years lived only for 10000 years thus from not giving of the property to the needy sexual misconduct increased and in the consequence people's lifespan decreased their beauty decreased and as a result the children of those whose lifespan had been 10000 years lived only 5000 years and among the generation whose lifespan has 5000 years two things increased harsh speech and idle chatter in consequence of which people's lifespan decreased their beauty decreased and as a result the children of those whose lifespan had been 5000 years lived some for 2 and 1/2000 years and some for only 2000 years and among the generation whose lifespan was 2 and 1/2000 years craving and anger increased and in consequence people's lifespan decreased their beauty decreased and as a result the children of those whose lifespan had only been 2 and 1/2000 years lived for only 1000 years among the generation whose lifespan was 1000 years false opinions increased and as a result the children of those whose lifespan had been 1000 years now lived only for 500 years and among the generation whose lifespan was 500 years three things increased incest excessive greed and unwholesome practices increased and as a result children of those whose lifespan had been 500 years lived some for 250 years some for only 200 years and among those whose lifespan was 250 years these things increased lack of respect for mother and father and for ascetics and brahmins and for the head of the community thus from not giving the property to the needy lack of respect for mother and father for ascetics and brahmins and for the head of community increased and in the consequence people's lifespan and beauty decreased and the children of those whose lifespan had only been two and a half centuries lived only for 100 years 
Monks, a time will come when the children of this people will have a lifespan of 10 years and with them girls will be marriageable at 5 years old and with them these flavors will disappear ghee, butter, sesame oil, molasses and salt. Among them, crudusa grain will be the chief food just as rice and curry are today. And with them, the 10 courses of moral conduct will completely disappear and the 10 courses of evil will prevail exceedingly. For those of a 10 year lifespan, there will be no word for moral. So how can there be anyone who acts in a moral way? Those people who have no respect for mother or father, for ascetics and Brahmins, for the head of community, will be the ones who enjoy honor and prestige. Just as it is now, the people who show respect for mother and father, for ascetics and Brahmins, for the head of community, who are praised and honored, so it will be those who do the opposite. Among those of a 10-year lifespan, no account will be taken of mother or aunt or of mother, sister-in-law, of teacher's wife or of one's father's wife and so on. All will be promiscuous in the world like sheep, fowl and pigs, dogs and jackals. Among them, fierce hostility will prevail one from another. Fierce hatred, fierce anger and thoughts of killing mother against child and child against mother, father against child and child against father, brother against brother, brother against sister. Just as the hunter feels hatred for the beast he stalks. And for those of a 10 year lifespan, there will come to be a sword interval of seven days during which they will mistake one another for wild beasts. Sharp swords will appear in their hands and thinking there is a wild beast. They will take each other's lives with those swords. But there will be some beings who do not want to take part in this killing. They went into hiding for seven days. Then at the end of the seven days, they will emerge from the hiding places and rejoice together as one community saying, Awesome beings, I see that you are alive. So let us now do good. And through having undertaken such wholesome things, they will increase in lifespan gradually from 10 years back to 80,000 years again. And in that time, an Arahan, fully enlightened Buddha named Maitriya will arise in the world. Okay. Thank you, Kushi. So what the Buddha is describing is this cause and effect of how the span of existence for humanity continues to decrease based on a leader not taking care of the needy in a particular community. And he goes through the cause and effect of all these things that are occurring. And one of the ways that you can use a discourse like this is when you see what he's talking about as unwholesome qualities is you can ensure that you're not practicing those much like I've described in other discourses. But ultimately what he gets to here is he's describing a period of time that is right now where he's talking about how human beings are very promiscuous in the world. 
He's talking about how there's this fierce hostility that will prevail, lots of hatred and fierce anger, thoughts of killing parents and children fighting against each other, relatives fighting. Just like a hunter stalks a beast, there's going to be this hatred among families. And then he talks about how eventually the way that all this is going to get fixed is by this fully enlightened Buddha, Maitreya, that arises in the world. And this is what's going to then restore his teachings back into the world. And now all of humanity will have a lifespan of 80,000 years based from that time that Maitreya arises until humanity comes to an end, that humanity will end 80,000 years from then, from when Maitreya awakens. So that's what he's talking about here. The way that I suggest you use a discourse like this is again, extracting out the unwholesome qualities and being sure that you practice elimination of those unwholesome qualities. That's how you can use a discourse like this to help you to develop your practice. Any questions on this discourse? Looks like Kushi has a question. Go ahead, ma'am. Yeah, I had a question that did people really live like 80,000 years or it's just a simile given here? He's talking about the lifespan of humanity. Like, so when we say like humans have a lifespan of 80,000 years, it means that humanity has 80,000 more years before everyone dies and there's no more humanity on this earth. So what the Buddha is saying is that at one time there was a lifespan for all of humanity to exist for 80,000 years, but that's kept decreasing and decreasing and decreasing and decreasing because of all these harmful things that basically we're going to destroy the world and all the harmful things that we're doing is humanity is going to basically evaporate and be gone from this world because we're doing such harmful things. But then with the arising of this new Buddha, Maitreya, restoring his teachings back into the world, then humanity from that point forward will have 80,000 more years to exist as humanity, as a complete population, not as an individual, not as one person living 80,000 years. A human being can't live that long. Okay, thumbs up. <laughs> All right, let me check to see if I have any questions on YouTube or Facebook. I don't see any there. So looks like Tonka, you might be up for this next chapter here. This is chapter 59. Become unrighteous. Monks, when kings are unrighteous, the royal subordinates become unrighteous. When the royal subordinates are unrighteous, Brahman and householders become unrighteous. When Brahmin and householders are unrighteous, the people of the town and countryside become unrighteous. When the people of the towns and countrysides are unrighteous, the sun and moon proceed, of course. When the sun and moon proceed, of course, the constellations and the stars proceed, of course. When the constellations and the stars proceed, of course, day and night proceed, of course. When day and night proceed, of course, the months and weeks proceed, of course. When the months and weeks proceed, of course, the seasons and years proceed, of course. When the seasons and years proceed, of course, the winds blow, of course, and at random. When the winds blow, of course, and at random, the deities become upset. The deities are upset, 
sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived, ugly, weak, and sickly. Then the Takata explained in the above in detail with the opposite causes, with the opposite results. Monks, when kings are righteous, the royal subordinates become righteous. When sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season. When people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy. Okay, thank you, Tonka. So here the Buddha is a master showing this cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. He does this all through his teachings, where here he's starting with the leader of being a king is unrighteous, meaning doing unwise things and unwholesome things. Then the employees of that king, the vassals, the people who are serving the king, also become unrighteous because they see that the king's doing unwise things and they're just going to follow his lead, all right? And now it goes through all this cause and effect all the way through the entire community to the point where ultimately then people become ugly, short-lived, weak, and sickly, all because of the king functioning in an unwise way. So this is the way I would suggest you use this, that if you're a leader in a company or if you're like a political leader or a leader even in your household, Understand that people are observing you. People are watching your conduct. Even if you have a husband or wife or you have children or something like this, you're teaching people around you at all times how you choose to function in the world and people are going to follow you. And by you making wise decisions, and you'll experience these wholesome results, but also the people around you will see you making those wise decisions and then they'll experience wholesome results too. And you guys can live together in harmony. But if you're making unwise decisions, you're going to be experiencing unwholesome results. And one of those unwholesome results is that the people around you are going to function in that same unwise way. And now you're going to have to deal with the results coming back to you. So by cultivating the wisdom of the natural law of gamma and then practicing that wisely, you'll see that your family unit, your business, your population of people, if you're a prime minister or president or any type of interactions that you're having on large scale or even on a smaller scale by you functioning in a wise way it's going to create nothing but wholesome results for you the buddha is going here showing a lot of detail but you can also extrapolate this for your life because you're probably not a king and if there's a king that's listening to this because there are some kings in the world that are interested in buddhist teachings then you can see here that it's very wise to function in a wise and wholesome way and that's also true even on a family level or on the level of being an owner of a company or president or ceo or something else like this so do you guys have any questions on this looks like tonka has a question go ahead ma'am i was just wondering diet is being upset should we take it as a metaphor or it's literal like what did buddha mean by that i have only ever seen this place and i think one other where there's reference to a deity here and they believed in deities during the lifetime of the buddha and they have some people have those beliefs nowadays too I don't really see the Buddha teaching much about this, so 
I take it on face value of what is being shared here. We aren't taught through the teachings of the Buddha, and I don't teach you to do anything about deities, but it's just something that he's sharing as part of the teachings. Whether these deities exist or not, I have never been able to confirm the existence of any deities, so I don't really pay attention to those kinds of things when I see it. It could be something that people added in, uh, or maybe the Buddha had some information that I don't have about these deities' existence, but it really isn't something that we learn or is going to change your ability to get to enlightenment. Okay, let me see if we have any other questions here. All right, I don't see any. So we're coming to our last chapter here, chapter 60. Is there anyone in Zoom that would like to read this one? Okay, go ahead, Kushi. Reasons for depopulation. Master Gautama, I have heard older Brahmins who are age burdened with years, teachers of teachers saying, in the past, this world was so thickly populated, one would think there were no space between people. The villages, towns, and capital cities were so close that roosters could fly between them. Why is it, Master Gautama, that at present the number of people has declined, depopulation is seen, and villages, towns, cities, and districts have vanished? At present, Brahman, people are excited by unwholesome lust, overcome by unrighteous grit, affected by wrong, harmful teachings. As a result, they take weapons and slay one another. Hence, many people die. This is a reason why at the present, the number of people has declined. Depopulation is seen and villages, towns, cities, and districts have vanished. Again, at present, people are excited by unwholesome lust, overcome by unrighteous greed, affected by wrong, harmful teachings. When this happens, sufficient rain does not fall. As a result, there is a famine, a scarcity of grain. The crops become spoiled and turned to straw. Hence, many people die. This is another reason why at present the number of people has declined. Depopulation is seen and villages, towns, cities and districts have vanished. Again, at present, people are excited by unwholesome lust, overcome by unrighteous grit, affected by wrong, harmful teachings. When this happens, the yakas, indigenous ethnic group or from the Indian subcontinent, release wild spirits. Hence, many people die. This is yet another reason why at present the number of people has declined. Depopulation is seen and villages, towns, cities and districts have vanished. Okay, thank you, Kushi. So again, the Buddha is showing this cause and effect, the reason for depopulation. And this could be seen today too, even though our population is expanding. We see the animal realm shrinking and we see the human realm expanding. At some point, if we see the human realm shrinking, we can see here the Buddha is explaining the reason for that is based on the quality of one's mind that overcome by this unwholesome lust, greed, wrongful teachings that people then turn to killing. And we see this in some countries nowadays that there's a lot of killing going on. So I imagine our population would probably be even more significant and larger if we 
uh, didn't have all this killing going on because of what's going on in people's minds. It's that same craving, anger, and ignorance that we learn about the three poisons and the three unwholesome roots, the three fires that is leading to any unwholesome result that is experienced in the world. You can trace anything back to what's going on in the mind of a human being making decisions that are leading to some impact here on the planet. Do you guys have any questions on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. I would like to uh, just apologize for my sickness here. You know, your teacher being healthy is impermanent, right? So I'm going to be unhealthy sometimes. That's the sickness of the human body, that it's going to be impermanent. But uh, also the sickness is impermanent as well. So no need to be upset or angry for yourself when you get sick. Remind yourself that this sickness is impermanent and it's not going to be permanent. So you can maintain your peace and your joy even when there's sickness in the body. So thank you guys that have uh, joined to learn and understand the teachings of the Buddha and practice them. I appreciate your dedication and diligence. And also thank you to Kushi and Tonka for reading. I appreciate that help. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 61 through 70. So if you'd like to study those ahead of time or after class, you can. Or if you need to just come to class and study them here, you can. But you'll definitely get more benefit from reading the books themselves that you can download from our website is buddhadailywisdom.com. And tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in volume one, chapter 20, which is titled Animal to Human, the Evolution of Our Consciousness. This is where I'm going to be helping you to understand the five realms, the five realms of existence and how many human beings have been reborn out of the animal realm, helping you to identify the animalistic instincts that exist in a human mind due to having so many rebirths in the animal realm, so that now when you identify those animalistic instincts, you can shed those so that you can then become a wiser and a better human being. That's what the path to enlightenment is all about, is shedding those animalistic instincts and becoming this better and better human being through the evolution of your consciousness and being able to see that very clearly that these are animalistic instincts that we talk about and that you're interested in shedding those will help you to get closer and closer to enlightenment. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. I'll be guiding you in that and then opening up to any and all questions that you guys might have. So thank you all for joining for today's class. Perhaps we'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a really wonderful and lovely rest of your day. See you next time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.